Welcome to Great Plains Anywhere, a Paul A. Olson lecture from the Center for Great Plains Studies at the University of Nebraska. Today we're joined by Dr. Will Aviles, Professor and Chair of Political Science at the University of Nebraska at Kearney, where his fields are comparative politics and Latin American politics. People who study comparative politics focus on political systems in other countries and how governments promote or inhibit the aspirations of the people. Dr. Aviles received his Bachelor's of Arts degree from Florida International University, a PhD from the University of California, Riverside, and joined UNK in 2002. Since the COVID-19 pandemic, he has been working with community activists and families from the meatpacking industry, an industry that has recently garnered national headlines related to COVID-19 cases and working conditions. And now a special note from Margaret Hiddle, Anishinaabe, Assistant Professor of History and Ethnic Studies at UNL and Center for Great Plains Studies Board of Governors member. On behalf of the Center for Great Plains Studies, I would like to begin by acknowledging that the University of Nebraska is a land-grant institution with campuses and programs on the past, present, and future homelands of the Pawnee, Ponca, Oto, Missouri, Omaha, Lakota, Dakota, Arapaho, Cheyenne, and Caw peoples, as well as the relocated Ho-Chunk, Iowa, and Sac and Fox peoples. Please take a moment to consider the legacies of more than 150 years of displacement, violence, settlement, and survival that bring us here today. This acknowledgement and the centering of Indigenous peoples is a start as we move forward together for the next 150 years. My name is Dr. Dujan Dielaport. I am the events coordinator here at the Center for Great Plains Studies. I'm Katie Neeland. I'm the assistant director at the Center for Great Plains Studies. I'm Will Avilas. I'm, the, uh, I'm a professor at the Department of Political Science at UNK. I'm also chair of the department, and I'm also the president of the faculty union uh, here at the university. Could you share a little bit about your role at the University of Nebraska at Kearney? Sure, John. Uh, my, uh, my role, as you mentioned, I'm uh, the chair of the department, as I mentioned in my introduction. And, um, you know, my, my work uh, regarding that administrative, uh, obviously have, uh, uh, I have a really pretty effective and um, uh, excellent department here at UNK. My own kind of teaching and research is uh, focused primarily in Latin American politics, um, issues of globalization, um, the drug war in Latin America, uh, as well as uh, issues related to um, political violence uh, in, in South America. So, that's my teaching and research uh, that I, I spend most of my time with uh, here at UNK. So what led you, a scholar of Latin America, to study and advocate for meatpackers in Nebraska and on the Great Plains? Well, a lot of different um, factors uh, came to play regarding my interest in meatpacking workers here in Nebraska, uh, in particular during this year of the global pandemic. Uh, first and foremost, uh, for some time, I've done work in my teaching in my classes uh, examining issues of uh, immigration and the various push and pull factors that are associated with uh, the flow of, of migrants from Latin America to the United States. As we all know, anyone who's watching this video knows, um, so much of our working uh, men and women in those meatpacking plants are important magnets and have been for, for generations for uh, many of these immigrants. So prior to this pandemic, um, I was pretty familiar with this dynamic uh, in central Nebraska and, and throughout the state. The, so there's that, that larger context. Now, in terms of the immediate context of 2020, uh, I basically was different individuals started organizing once it seemed clear that the meatpacking um, 
the plants themselves were not going to be changing uh, their behavior um, and that workers were going to be expected to still be uh, working uh, right on top of each other, very fast uh, lines on the factory floor and in, in just absolutely vulnerable uh, situations when it comes to the spread of the, the virus. And uh, a colleague of mine here at UNK uh, reached out to me to ask if I'd be interested in helping them out. And um, I, I said yes to that, that question. Um, I further discovered that many of my current students and my former students were actually in these very plants. Uh, well, forgive me, their parents were in these plants. So uh, that was perhaps an added incentive for me to, uh, to get more involved and more engaged in trying to support the efforts of the group that we, uh, we developed called the Solidarity with Packing Plant Workers. So yeah, I guess a larger, my larger research Latin American politics, my, my understanding of this kind of immigration dynamic and the, the difficult nature of the work and the kind of exploitive nature of the work prior to the pandemic. And then the pandemic hits and it, I become uh, aware of these various groups that are trying to get together and do something. And it's like, okay, yeah. And now, in addition, I've got students that are mom and dads are in those plants right now. So that all kind of combined uh, led me to, to get involved. That makes the topic really like personally impactful when you know people involved. Oh, it absolutely does. It absolutely does. And, you know, so at times it was, it was definitely a bit difficult. I think at times for all of us um, when, because actually interacting with the, the daughters and the sons were actually a part of the organization. And so, but it was also the same. So that was difficult at moments, but it also was absolutely pretty impressive that my former students were taking this leadership role, right? They're already entering, they're in their professions, they're already doing what they can, but they themselves are exciting. They need to, to get involved. So that in itself was quite um, inspiring. It, just, it, was, it was a real good feeling to be in solidarity with them. So uh, we later, as the, you know, much of this work got started in April, and as we got into the summer, um, Omaha, Lincoln, um, communities in those areas also uh, got engaged and got involved in, in the process. Or at least in terms of trying to help us figure out ways of bringing more attention to this issue and to try to put pressure on um, our political leaders. So you mentioned that you started uh, doing the work in April. Yes. So since that time, what have you discovered? Well, I discovered a number of things, uh, I guess, not necessarily in order of priority. I, I discovered the, that reasonable requests to uh, Governor Ricketts and much of our political establishment were, were viewed by them as unreasonable. That was a bit surprising. So for example, it was surprising to learn to the extent that uh, our leadership here in the state um, was unwilling to report the number of positive cases in a specific plant. That was something that we, we did what we could to pressure and demand uh, happen so that workers and the people in those communities would have a sense of how well a particular plant was doing in terms of getting control of the spread of the virus. That was something that was, from the beginning, uh, was um, viewed as absolutely unreasonable, still not clear why. I understand, I had my own understanding as to why, but um, I was surprised to the extent that they were willing to try to con conceal that information because they, they knew the information. But they felt it wasn't appropriate and perhaps unfair to a specific plant uh, to share that information. I also learned the limits to unions here in Nebraska when it comes to meatpacking workers. Um, United Food and Commercial Workers Union, UFCW, is the major uh, union that represents meatpacking workers here, well, across the country. 
And it was one of my roles was since I'm also a president of a union here at the university was to early on to act as a bridge to that union with our efforts uh, as activists on the ground. And it was surprising to learn that the, the relationship between the rank and file and the leadership of the union was not as, as close, um, not as kind of connected as I had, um, I had anticipated or I had assumed. And, and so that was something, and, and this is, they have new leadership in this union and they're, I generally believe they're trying the best to improve that communication, but there was a lack of, there was some distrust between members of the rank and file. Uh, at least the, the workers that we interacted with and their families and just over time it became clear uh, in the leadership of the union. Even when you had a plant like JBS in Grand Island that has a union that represents them or the union that repre they represent the uh, Smithfield workers as well. But there, there seemed to be a real lack of, of coordination uh, between that leadership and the, the rank and file. So that was something else that, that I learned. And I mean, I guess those probably kind of the core things that, that I learned. I mean, obviously it was it was troubling to get a sense of how slow and how inadequate the plants were being in terms of their, their efforts to improve. And um, I mean, that wasn't surprising, but that was, that was also a bit frustrating as we went along. So uh, Reuters recently published a story that um, talked about a lawsuit regarding surviving members of uh, COVID-19 in a, work that they've been trying to make on getting uh, workers' compensation benefits. This was at a JBS plant in Greeley, Colorado. Mm -hmm. Have you heard any stories about um, employee benefits and uh, issues around where COVID-19 was contracted and how that impacted the work of employees uh, in, in your research? Well, in the work that we've been doing um, has been just more recently, we've been trying our best to collect OSHA complaints and trying to collect data from actual workers about the inadequacies of the safety precautions in these plants. And so in that work, we've been coordinating with Nebraska ACLU. So Nebraska ACLU has been involved in trying to find uh, this kind of information in, in the hopes or with the idea of possibly engaging in a lawsuit. Um, as at this point, it's still, you know, I guess in the process in terms of trying to get a case they feel is viable enough and has enough concrete information to go forward with. But that over the last few months, probably in about the midpoint in the summer into the fall, our, our attention started shifting more to that direction, trying to get some concrete OSHA complaints, very specific complaints from these various plants to assess if there could be a basis for legal action. Um, as of right now, that's still I don't believe anything at this moment has been filed, but my sense is that we're, we're getting close, but that's been about midpoint in the summer to the, early, to the early part of fall. That's been a lot of our attention. There are a lot of different groups that are in one way or another trying their best to either pressure, pressure the unicameral, will be pressuring the unicameral, or trying to engage in OSHA collection uh, complaints or media attention. So there's, there's a lot of different tactics that are being employed to, to improve the situation. Sort of taking a step back um, and talking about activism in these communities in general, can you talk a little bit about like the role of activism? Well, several of the people who were involved in, uh, let's say, uh, organizing car parades. So one of the first things that we did uh, was to organize, I guess, protest marches, but all in our, our automobiles. Mm -hmm. And they're, they're referred to the kind of car parade uh, type vigils. 
And that's something that we um, were able to do in Grand Island and Lexington and in Crete uh, multiple weekends in a row. And people were able to, to engage in that pretty quickly because some of the people who are leading these groups have already had an experience doing social movement work around immig immigration rights or anti-war or other types of, I'm just trying to think of the other issues. I mean, those are probably kind of the core issues that these individuals have been in, the ones that took kind of a more leadership role in, uh, in the organization. So in that sense, they already had a, a background of, of activism. The interesting thing with COVID is like, how, how can we, we do this while keeping people safe? And so obviously the Black Lives Matter, and we see people mass gathered together now, pretty close, wearing their masks and so forth. But in April, uh, that wasn't something that none of us were comfortable in doing. And we felt that it was uh, another way of going about it were, were cars. So um, we would basically, every weekend, uh, probably about four or five weekends in a row, we would just get together uh, as many cars as we could in a central location. We'd have a lead car. We'd plaster our automobiles with signs in Spanish and in English, especially in Lexington and Grand Island. Um, what am I talking about? Crete as well, in terms of bilingual signs. And then we'd have a route and we'd just roll, our, roll through these, these various communities uh, two or three times, uh, blaring our horns, trying to bring attention to these issues. We'd come back to our beginning point and then speeches would be given via like Zoom, Zoom phone. I don't know really very tech savvy, but being, being able just through the cell phone and through an, uh, uh, a blow, a blow horn? Sorry, sorry, but basically, uh, what am I trying to say? Oh, here? A bull horn. Bull horn. Yeah. Bull horn. Bull horn? Yeah. What is that? <laughs> a bull horn. And uh, to make certain people around the surrounding community to hear the, the speech the speakers. And we would have uh, activist leaders, the, the son or daughter of a meatpacking worker, sometimes have meatpacking workers themselves uh, speak. And um, maybe we'd maybe have a price, short prayer, and we would, we would end our day. Each and every one of those parades was preceded with a reach out to the media uh, in the hopes, our, our kind of central objective was just, just to get media attention, to get uh, a story in, um, in the Carney Hub or to get a story in the Lincoln Journal Star and to get local TV coverage. And we were, I, I feel we were quite successful in doing that. Even some national coverage we were able to get from the Washington Post, uh, from Mother Jones, um, these other national publications that did stories on a Lexington protest or on the daughter of a Lexington worker in Tyson, or did a story on the daughter of someone who was working in Smithfield and Crete. So I was really quite happy that at least on, on that level of objectives, we were able to achieve that. And, um, and so a lot of attention was, was brought to, and I think, I think objectively we contributed to that um, in terms of trying to create an event where there was something to cover. And then through that, actually um, be interviewed and, and give stories to talk about why we were doing what we were doing. Um, so we even did one large one in Lincoln. We did a, a big car parade in Lincoln, um, I, forget, I think in sometime in August, that we did that particular event where we brought all people, activists from all the various communities went to Lincoln and we did a, a, a parade through, through town. Definitely interesting when uh, the larger sort of coastal media, like what they choose to cover from our place in the country. Yes. Um, and I definitely remember seeing uh, meatpacking and COVID high up there, like on the New York Times front page and talking about some of these issues in the wider Great Plains. But you also bring up a really interesting point about 
how do you protest during a pandemic <laughs> when the pandemic is part of the protest itself? Um, it's really interesting that some of the technology they're using, just the creative ideas. Yeah, exactly. It was. It was really interesting. And, and but we were, uh, I think, pretty serious in doing our best to, OK, we wanted people to feel safe so they can come out. And um, that sometimes people would in that when we would get to our location, some people would get out of their cars and so forth. But it was understood no one had to they could engage and participate without ever leaving their, their automobile. And I think for a lot of people that was, yeah, that was, that was pretty important. I think it's still important, even though I recognize with BLM and what's happening, I understand the, the anger and energy to get to a point that we need to go back, maybe go back to what we did before uh, and not try to engage in these other methods. But just the sheer size of them strikes me would be a much bigger challenge to replicate what, what we did um, in these more these smaller communities. Um, what do you hope that people take away from some of your research? Well, my hope that, that what people can take away from, you know, the research that I've done and my, my colleagues have done is, is, well, right now, the hope is that they understand that it's still, it's still an ongoing situation. So the editorial that I, that I got published in Lincoln Journal Star that I wrote uh, that came out a couple of weeks ago, that, that was the intent of that, that message. And it's one that we're, we're continuing to try to do. But it's, it's a bit more of a challenge now because the media attention, you know, Katie makes a good point. So, okay, at that moment, okay, Nebraska or the Midwest, we're going to be paying attention to planes. But there are other issues that come up. And so we have a core group that are still focused on this issue. And we continue to think of different ways of how to, to maintain uh, our focus on this issue and, and try to get people's attention, um, not to forget about these individuals. So that's one thing I hope will, will come away from it. Um, Ideally, as the unicameral meets again, we'll, we'll be working with our, our allies there in the, states, in the state unicameral to uh, try to achieve some legislative changes. So in particular, Senator uh, Tony Vargas, he, so he's a member, he's a Facebook member, but he's also participated and spoken at some of our events. Um, we have like over 630 Facebook friends, I guess they're members of Solidarity Packing Plant Workers. So he's a member. And so I know definitely once the year begins, uh, we're going to definitely be engaging with him and his allies in the hopes of pushing forward into the legislation that can, that can assist the workers here in the state and or just get the Department of Labor uh, of Nebraska to be more uh, aggressive and more periodic, engage more periodic inspections of these spaces. So hopefully all the work that we're doing, including our research, will be a basis for those kinds of changes uh, going forward. because. Even though Donald Trump has said we're going to get the vaccine in November 3rd, um, around that time, I'm not counting on it. So I'm uh, anticipating the virus and these challenges are going to be with us uh, well into the, into the spring of next year. So some kind of legislative response is going to be necessary then. So as we've seen um, you know, during this nine months or so that we've been involved in this uh, pandemic, uh, we've seen certain places increase their level of um, protection and, and their process in, in protecting people and their guidelines around COVID. Have you seen some of those guidelines uh, move away? I'm, I'm thinking of certain states that have started to lift restrictions or certain areas that have started to lift restrictions. I know Omaha is talking about, will they extend their mask uh, mandate any longer? Have you seen any of those restrictions, uh, I guess, uh, step back in the meatpacking plants, or are they still 
at the point where they they said that they would be at if that well, makes we, sense we know that like mask wearing became much more it still still remains a, a requirement and there there are dividers that were established in, in many of these plants so there were some steps taken by the plant but uh, i do know that like line speeds they have ratcheted up um, over these last few weeks maybe nice. even faster to what they were before as, as me packing uh these, these plants try their best to catch up and ensure that they meet that market demand for their product. So that hasn't been a, that, that, I view that as a, a stepping back. Um, there really never was too much success in reducing uh, crowding in the plants. So one of the, the issues that we were concerned about were like um, locking room uh, spaces where, where workers would come together before their shift and change into what they needed to wear for the, for the day. And there hasn't really been much progress in, in terms of trying to mitigate that. So that never really was addressed. So I guess that still remains a, a problem. Um, the, so beyond the line speed and the, beyond the, the continued challenge of actually trying to keep, reduce the amount of crowding that happens, uh, whether it's during the lunch hour or during the, the shift changes, uh, that remains a, an issue and a problem that never really has been addressed from, from the start. So have you seen connections um, to your advocacy work with this group and other groups that you've advocated for in Latin America or other groups that you've um, looked at in Latin America? The issue of the car parade is one that, um, that we discussed and, and I brought up as well, the, the connections in terms of uh, various um, caravans. So obviously there's, if you recall the 2018 election, there was the real scary caravan that was coming at the US-Mexican border. But, that's a different type of caravan. They're having caravans for years now in Latin America where uh, over um, human rights abuses associated with the war on drugs, over um, the mothers and fathers trying to uh, find out where their sons and daughters have disappeared on their, their trek to the United States. So last five years has been a really vibrant movement of, of mothers primarily who've been trying to bring attention to the fact that they've lost loved ones and they, they don't know where they lost them because as, as we all know that the trek is, is such a dangerous one and, and a difficult one for many of them, especially those traveling from Central America. So those caravans were ones that I, I, I thought of and others talked about and we talked about as being a, a model. Um, and there also had to be models in the United States as well in which car parades were already happening uh, around other issues. So in that sense, there's a connection that I, I think is relevant. The, uh, the leaders of these organizations, like uh, Gladys Godinez, she's a former student of mine. She uh, lives and works in Lexington. She herself is an immigrant from Guatemala. And I, she's very familiar with, I think, the, the kind of activism that's associated with Latin American politics. So I think these individuals still have connections and links to communities in Latin America. So in that sense, you could see there's the influence uh, there. But probably the biggest one would be the, the, the use of caravans, the use of that kind of presence um, that has been done for a while in Latin America without pandemic forcing it, that it made sense, that that, that would be relevant and, and helpful in this situation. The one piece that I maybe want to add is, and I know it's quite cliche, but and I should have added it to that question regarding where I learned, the extent that, that a small group of people can actually do, um, do a lot. Um, the, the extent that five, six, 10, 15 individuals, if they're, they're committed to a particular objective, can collectively uh, come together and implement that particular plan. And that's something that was, it was in 
important or interesting to see that, that cliche uh, of a few people can do so much. Okay, yeah, there, there's definitely some truth to that. Um, and I think that was borne out by, by the work that was, that was done in Lexington, Grand Island, Crete, and Lincoln. We're, we're not talking about hundreds of people. And in fact, the very first meeting, we had maybe we had 30, 35 individuals, and that kind of got shrunken down to like a core group of 10 to 15 that were, were essential to organizing so much of this. So that was definitely pretty cool to, to see that that's a, that's, a, that's a true thing that can happen. Has it been a challenge to organize people around this topic, given um, some people may be sick or might be resistant uh, because they're challenging their employer to uh, stand up for this, uh, this issue? That's a really good question. In, in terms of the, the workers, it, it was, you know, our connections with them, as I mentioned earlier, were, were through family connections and, uh, and then through the union itself. Um, the workers itself, consistently, there was a, a fear that they expressed to us about their, their ability to be public about it and, and the possibility they could risk their job, risk losing shifts, hours, wh whatever it may be. So I think from early on, that was already understood as a, as a real challenge that we probably weren't going to be able to, to overcome. But as long as we continue to get feedback from workers who felt and, and did express us while we were organizing the parades, that they wanted to see more of it and that they felt that it would work and they felt that it had um, an impact. And that was kind of our, our, our basis, just sort of getting a pulse of what was happening in those plants also kind of getting a sense from them that they thought what we were doing was, was, was important and it was something we should keep doing. And so as long as we got that, that sense, we, we kept doing it. We kept organizing, we kept trying to find OSHA complaints that might be relevant for a legal case, uh, reaching out to state senators, uh, talking to the media, uh, et cetera. So yeah, it's an excellent question. It, is, it was an obstacle that I think even to this day, uh, it's been a challenging one. Uh, just given the vulnerability of these individuals that are working in these plants. Um, if people would like to learn more about your advocacy work um, with meatpackers in Nebraska and on the plains, where would you suggest that they go? Well, there are a number of different sources. I, I think uh, we have our own Facebook page, the Solidarity with Packing Plant Workers. So someone can just Google uh, that, that organization and you should be able to find it pretty quickly. Uh, our we are part of a much larger coalition of groups that are also engaged. So uh, Nebraska Appleseed, the Center for Rural Affairs, uh, Children of Smithfield, which is our own kind of separate group that we work together, the Heartland Workers Center, Nebraska ACLU. I mean, all of those groups that I listed, you can find them by, by Googling, Googling them and you should be able to find information about uh, all the different tactics and information about what the condition of these plants are today. I will also add Nebraska AFL-CIO and the USCW in Nebraska. Also a pretty good source uh, for information. Uh, Dr. Will Avalis, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Great talking to you. Thanks very much. We'd like to thank Will Avalis for talking with us today. Find all of our short, great feeds, talks, and interviews as videos and podcasts at go.unl.edu slash gplectures.